Psalm 62, which is page 897 in your pew Bible, and it starts off with, Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from Him. Truly, He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down? This leaning wall, this tottering fence, surely they intend to topple me from my lofty palace. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless but in their hearts they curse. Yes, my soul finds rest in God. My hope comes from Him. Truly, He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to Him, for God is our refuge. Surely the lowborn are but a breath, the highborn are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together, They are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or put vain and hope in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. And you reward everyone according to what they have done. And you reward everyone according to what they have done. Uh, Luke Chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, page 16, 17 in the Pew Bible. Uh, 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my, brother, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man who appointed me, a judge or an arbiter between you. Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable, the ground of certain rich men yield an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And then there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how God will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Can you hear me? Does I'm yelling right at you. 
the, how's that? There we go. All right. Stewardship is living a responsible life, caring for those things with which God has blessed us and entrusted us. But to think about stewardship, to, to kind of put out pleas as churches do, asking for people to increase their giving or their participation or their time or their talents, unless we examine some of the deeper values upon which a lifestyle of stewardship is constructed, then it can be a a fruitless endeavor because we're never actually digging deep into the why. Often churches get the what. That is, we know what to do. But, But a deep spiritual life, a life of discipleship that yearns and follows after the one who has called us to live lives of responsibility, that requires us to ask the why. We know maybe what we should do, but why should we do it? And that's what we've been thinking about last week when we talked about security. And that's what we're going to think of this week when we look at a concept that is really related inextricably to security. And that is this word. Not message or Reverend Dr. Evan W. Dodge. It's in between. There. Let's say that word together. Scarcity. Scarcity. In 2014, there was a well-known book that was launched by a woman named Marie Kondo. How many of you remember Marie Kondo? Marie Kondo was this slight little small Japanese lady who would go into people's homes and work with them and help them on decluttering, on getting rid of stuff. Now, I liked her show until I heard her say this, that you should only have a maximum of 30 books. I said, nope, this isn't for me. When we moved here, we had 60 boxes of books. I can't imagine paring all that down to 30. My goodness, no. But her book sort of caught on as, as people wrestled with their possessions and wanting to declutter and simplify and live a cleaner life. And that book turned into a television show. Didn't any of you ever watch it? It was on Netflix for a while. Where she would go into people's homes and she would help them parse through their possessions. And she didn't just ask them, do you want to keep this microphone? She would ask them deeper questions. What does this microphone mean to you? And her, her overarching question, does it bring you joy? Yes, Marie, my 60 boxes of books bring me great joy. Does it bring you joy? And I remember one episode where she sat down with this uh, father who who had an issue with keeping possessions. Talk about an abundance of possessions. He and the man in Jesus' parable would have had a lot in common. You walked into his home and there there were narrow paths through, albeit neatly organized piles, but they were piles nevertheless. And she would find things like, a, like an old brass mailbox that had hung uh, outside of his childhood home. And she started asking him questions about that mailbox. And i never forget what she said. It's quite profound. She said, do you want to carry this mailbox into the future that you imagine? Well, that's, a, that's a profound question for a Netflix show. Do you want to carry this mailbox into the future that you imagine? 
He said, no, I, I, I guess I don't. And through asking questions about joy and, and connection and relationship, she worked with this gentleman, and uh, pretty soon his, his home was pretty free and clear. A couple years later, I read something in the New York Times about that Netflix show. Quite interesting. You might be able to imagine this. The vast majority of people featured on that show with whom she worked would go into their house and help them sort through their possessions and asking those deep questions about connection and relationship and ultimate value. Guess what? Most of them fell right back into those patterns of keeping and hoarding and purchasing possessions. And she was interviewed about this and sort of asked Why do you think that is? You know, you spent time with these people. They read your book. You asked them if, you know, the microphone brings them joy. And they said, yeah, no. And why do you think then that after you worked with them in just a matter of months or at the most a year or two, they slipped back into their old patterns? And I'll never forget the word she used. She said, there seems to be something in America. Remember, she's from Japan. There seems to be something in America people are driven by scarcity. What do you find in that word, scarcity? Scared, fear, afraid, afraid. And as she broke down a bit more and expanded on that sentence by what she meant by that was that people are afraid that there's not going to be enough and so they want more for themselves. She didn't say it in quite those words, but that was what she meant when she was analyzing why people return to these patterns and habits of keeping more and more for themselves, of living lives that chase after possessions, where acquisition of more stuff is the, the, seems to be the ultimate value, because people are afraid. They're scared that there won't be enough for them. Oh my goodness. Look at the room around us. I made a mistake the other day, brother. I logged on to Westpath, which handles the investments for the denomination. Look at my 403B. Oh, no. You should not have done that. And you know what? In a moment, guess how looking at that figure and looking at the red and the negative sign in front of the water How do you think that made me feel? A little bit scared. Under a heading, it's all about how we relate to stuff. And Jesus, in response. 
from the crowd gives this parable of a, of a man who had a lot of stuff. He had a lot of grain. He was a farmer. My mic? It's not working. I need that. Can you all hear me pretty well? Yeah. I can speak up. Sorry for those who are listening online. Tony, I'll, I'll come right to your ear. <laughs> There's a rich man who's a, a wealthy landowner. He's a farmer. He has a lot of stuff. And what does he do? When we come to these Bible stories, I'm always interested in listening for the pronouns that are used. Are they in the first or the third person? I. I have so much. I want to be comfortable. I may be a little bit worried about what will affect my future. So I'm going to build even bigger barns to store my stuff. What does that indicate about the, the person who's just this man in the story? Who's he concerned with? Himself. Himself. Because he's scared of what might happen. Oh, he has a lot now, but who knows what the future will hold, and he wants to be secure. And so out of the fear of what might or might not be, he hoards more for himself. Why, does this convict us or what? When we start talking about stuff, isn't it interesting how uncomfortable we can get? Maybe there's some of you sitting here thinking, oh, I should read the fine print next time before I go to church. Pastor, we're talking about stewardship. Friends, unless we confront sometimes on a daily basis the power that stuff can exert over our lives, if we aren't doing that, perhaps we need to. Living a life of discipleship, which is really a life of stewardship. Let's see those two things interchangeably. Stewardship, which is just being a, a responsible caretaker for everything you've been given. It touches on your faith. Your finances, your family, your job, everything in life under that covering of stewardship. Being a disciple is being a good steward. And if you're going to be a good disciple, just as we talked at the beginning, if you're going to follow after Jesus earnestly, you wouldn't read your Bible twice a year. You wouldn't come to church just on Christmas and Easter, I hope. You wouldn't give to God. Here we go. You wouldn't give to God a portion of the leftovers after you are secure and set. No. Stewardship is just as much of a part of a life of discipleship as anything else you do because it touches on the entirety of your existence. And it's interesting to me, friends, and again, it's so important when we read and hear these scriptures to be able to read and to hear them with Jewish eyes and ears. I don't think that there is any, uh, by coincidence or, or by chance, that Jesus references brain. He uses an, an agrarian image here. Because his, his listeners, most of whom would have been good observant Jews who knew the law and the Torah, when they heard him talk about this, they would think of all of their religious life that structured harvest. And in the Bible days, this is often, there's a contrast between often how the world handles things, and let's be real, sometimes we as Christians handle things this way, and what, what God calls us to do. First, this is how the world and sometimes the church handles things. 
all right, I've got um, a certain amount of money maybe coming in this month, so I'll make sure that I have what I need, that my bills are paid, that I have enough for this or that, and then I'll take what's left over and I'll give a portion of that back to God. That is not at all how tithes and offerings in the ancient Jewish world were constructed theologically. It was, you have everything that God has given you, and out of that, before you think about anything else, you offer God a portion of that. And then, you worry, you take care of the other things. But you take the entirety of what you have, your whole harvest, and you give God the best from that. And then you address other concerns. And so when Jesus is talking about grain, and this man who's harvested all of this, they're going to hear that, and they're going to understand, well, this is not a man who has taken and given back to God, in service to God and others, the best of his harvest. But he saved it for himself. Maybe he'll give God a little bit after everything else is taken. Friends, isn't that often how we approach things? We take care of our needs, our wants, our desires, our whole laundry list of concerns and considerations first, and then we'll give a little to God. And yet over and over again, all through the Old Testament, into the New Testament, there's a pattern that God blesses abundantly those who take the very best from the very beginning and offer that to God's service as opposed to those who take care of themselves first and consider God and what He requires from us later. God blesses the one. And I guarantee, if we had time and we've been around this room, people talk about God's provision in their lives, they could give testimony to just that. That when we attend to the needs of God and God's people first, with our very best, God blesses that. And we find that sometimes when we didn't think there would be enough to go around, we find we have just enough daily bread for today. Friends, think about how you're interacting, how you're addressing, how, how you're relating to the stuff in your life. See, the world says, what do I need? The Christian says, well, what does God need from me? The world around us says, is there going to be enough for me? A Christian says, is there going to be enough for others? The world around us says, what if there's not enough for me? And the Christians, we say, how can we best meet the needs of those who don't have enough? A scarcity mindset when it comes to the things of God is concerned with the individual, with our needs, our desires, our wants, and others in God later. But friends, those of us who instead approach all of life as a gift, because it is. You don't know it, but you're breathing air in and out right now. That's a gift from God. You have your health, you're here this morning, that's a gift from God. You had a way of getting to church this morning, that's a gift from God. We're going to go enjoy a little bit of food and coffee later, and I think Lisa made crumb cake, let me tell you, that is a gift from God. Amen. 
That it was all a gift. And that the people, when they came time to, to offer back to God their very best, it was so that God would work through their very best to bring grace and liberation to people around them. See, that's what the Israelites had experienced, hadn't they? Through God's grace, they were liberated from Egypt to become a particular people, living a particular way, serving the one true God as an example to the people around them. And part of the way they did that was to give their very best so that others might know liberating grace of God. Friends, it's no different than us. We're called to give, not because God needs it, as if we could give anything to God that God doesn't already have. No. We're called so that we are formed in a particular way, where our priorities are reevaluated, where, where our spiritual eyes and ears are fine-tuned so that we're better able to see the need around us. And through our giving, Others can experience that liberating grace of God. This is the life in the spiritual order that God works through us to impact the world around us. And yet, if the church is caught up in the atmosphere and the attitude of the world, and we're scared because out of fear of what might be one day, well, friends, that's a life and the orientation to the world that, that God has said, He will bless that. What God will bless is people who come to Him and say, All of life is a gift. All I have is yours, O oh God. I'm offering back to you some of what you have given to me. May it be used to bring the liberating grace that I have experienced into the world around. When we find our identity and security in God and what He has done for us, not in the trappings of this world. That's all that God will bless. Amen.